Welcome to the episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And it's a new month, so that means a new genre. And this genre, or this month's genre, is is somewhat different. I feel like it's a genre that uh, is sometimes not easily defined for people. Um, it is a genre that kind of exists. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a chamber piece, basically. So this month, we are talking about contained movies or like kind of containment genre i guess you could say um and so thomas what is to you the contained genre containment genre well there's a couple things that come to mind which i think we're going to work on kind of figuring those all out this month and seeing seeing where they meet and where they have common points uh one is definitely like a paranoia piece uh which i think we'll be talking about today but a lot of when i think of these kind of stuck in one place films. I think of of movies that are about the psychological effects of being stuck in one place, which I think I think we can all relate to over the past couple of years. But <laughs> you know, something from Twelve Angry Men about how these like tempers can boil over when all these people are together in one place, to yeah. Wait Until Dark, which is a favorite of mine. Yeah. To you know, some horror pieces where you're just kind of stuck in one place. It's it's all about how kind of yeah the the, the four walls start to to tighten around you, and kind of the uh, the the bridge. Some of those ones that we just talked about are also plays, which is another thing yeah. I think about. Are are play adaptations? A lot of stage adaptations are chamber pieces because it's a lot easier to do a play when you're when you're just in one space and you don't have to change the sets out. So, so some other ones like um, One Night in Miami we've talked about recently uh, as as being a a chamber piece that kind of does it really well. And with the film, they introduce that kind of beginning section to get you out of that one room. But the rest of the film is pretty much in that one room and, and a lot of other plays. But I believe, you know, 12 Angry Men and Wait Until Dark were both plays beforehand. So so you definitely see that pop up a lot within the chamber yeah. piece genre. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because yeah, when you say in psychological effects, it, it is it is very true. It's like when you look at a lot of the stuff from even even Die Hard is an example <laughs> of like something that like it's, it's there's sometimes tense moments within this within this genre, um, or it's like it's The Shining, or it's The Thing, or it's Alien. Like these yeah. are all movies that kind of deal with that. Uh, idea there's even of, when you go into Twelve Angry Men, there's like a sub sub genre of like being stuck with a lot of people and it driving you insane where you've got yeah. uh virginia Wol- who's afraid of virginia wolf you've got god of carnage um there's, there's all these all these movies and plays about like all right let's all sit down and like talk this out and everybody's at each other's throats by the end of it i mean i even throw in like one flew the cuckoo's nest in some way mm-hmm. with, with with that too um you know there's like a sequence where they go off at one yeah, point cattle on a hot tin roof yep that's a, that's another great example. Uh, even the invitation we've talked about, mm-hmm. like like previously, like the, we I, when looking at this genre, I was like, oh, we've talked about some of these before. Yes, like we do. I think I think it, I think it's clear that we enjoy this genre. These when movies, it's done well. yeah, we do. <laughs> well, it's like we either director episodes or solo episodes, but like Crimson Tide is one that pops up. Mm-hmm. of like them in the submarine for the majority of the movie, um, or even Breakfast Club is another example to go with people that are in a room talking about stuff. They they all like are different personalities or disagree on like that's a big thing um and so a lot of these contained movies you will kind of see not t- i mean kind of take place over a day for them not not all the time but a lot of times it's it's over a short period of time even example more recent one to kind of throw into this is like Encanto, 
fits mm, in yep. this category fairly mm-hmm. well of like it pretty much all takes place at their their house yeah that was one of the um, first things i think i texted you when i got out yeah. of it was i think disney just made the world's first ever chamber piece for kids like i can't think of another kids movie where it's just like yeah we're just gonna be in this one place for the whole movie yeah so you'll see a lot of you'll see suspense stuff you'll see mystery kind of stories we're talking about later in the month with clue um and so it's kind of a good way to tell an interesting thrilling story and i think you and me have always like said we've always liked these movies and i think sometimes people uh this happened with one night in miami even though i don't know if it fully fits in here but like some like my rain's black bombs another example too Mm -hmm. or like people like oh it feels like a play but like i know you and i both like when it feels like a play in some extent because like if it's great acting it's great acting i feel like or if it's great filmmaking it's great filmmaking um and we'll talk about that today because i think today is like for me it's in one place we're talking about rear window today rear window is probably one of the best examples of like pure cinema Mm -hmm. that's the thing so when people say like oh it's all in one room it's not really a film but like today's movie's gonna prove that like it's purely cinematic and it all takes place from one room um and that's but yeah i think it's always fun to watch actors act and see kind of what how personalities clash and kind of it's it it holds a mirror up to humanity a lot of the Mm -hmm. times yeah if it's like even ex machina is another example Mm -hmm. of that it's like it it shows a lot a lot of different things um of what what people are like and it's it's easy i think today it's like it's with rear window it's like you'll see i think it was i think when reading uh francois truffaut's interview with hitchcock kind of talking about how when you look out side in the courtyard it's basically like it's us looking back at ourselves a lot of the time Mm -hmm. it's 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 things that you realize you you recognize in real life um and that's there and i think the yeah these movies kind of make characters reevaluate or evaluate who they are um because the people that are they're around them they're forced to be around um in this time but i think I think I guess it's, I don't know if it's a trope, but like there's always a reason kind of why they can't leave the area a lot of the times. So I can't leave the room. Mm-hmm. It's like that's the thing. They can't leave Antarctica because they're trapped there basically with, with no helicopter and no way to get out. Or it's the shining is that they can't leave because they've been snowed in um, after he's been watching the place or it's die hard. They can't leave because they're they're being held up um there's or style 17 a great movie i love by billy wilder where they're they're, they're prisoners of war mm-hmm. like there has to be a reason why they're here and they can't just walk out the door i think that's what makes the good ones and i i think i mean one that isn't really like that is the invitation but they 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 they're not they can walk out the door but it's kind of being they're kind of being prevented from doing that yes. Um, it would be rude there. to walk out the door which is kind of the point yes. of the movie is like how yeah how long are you going to stay here even though all your instincts are telling you to leave, but leave. Yeah, how long are you going to hold up pretense, you know, social pretenses? Yeah, or it's Breakfast Club and it's detention, or it's uh, Crimson Tide and they're they're locked in separate, <laughs> or it's or it's Green Room and they're being held up or locked uh, locked in the in the green room by this neo Nazi group of people. Like it, it, there has to be a reason for these characters to stay even even shiva baby it's like it's it's a it's a it's a shiva um the more or more recent one that's a low budget one so yeah there has to be kind of a reason for you to be here and a reason for you not just get up and walk out 
Um, so when you're tackling one of those movies, make sure you have that reason uh, for when you're writing it. Mm-hmm. But so, but to kind of that's kind of the beginning of this. We'll talk more about it as we go on this month. But today we are talking about Rear Window, and for those that do not know, Rear Window is a 1954 film uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and it stars uh, Jimmy Stewart or James Stewart. Uh, Grace Kelly, uh, Wendell Corey, Thelma Ritter, and Raymond Burr. And the plot of Rear Window is Jimmy Stewart plays Jeff, L.B. Jeffries, or Jeff, who is a photographer who has been injured after a kind of a racetrack photography session or a racetrack or a a race that he's been, he was uh, taking photos of went wrong. He, He injured himself after a car crash. Uh, and he's stuck in his apartment uh, in New York in, a, in kind of a Greenwich Village area apartment. But he finds himself watching his neighbors in his complex from across the street and the, and the apartments that surround him. Um, and all while this is happening, he, he believes he sees one of his neighbor or he hears his neighbor kill his wife. And he believes that this woman has been killed by, by the neighbor and no one really believes him. Uh, and kind of the subplot, it's actually kind of the main purpose of the movie, uh, <laughs> is is Jeff's relationship with his girlfriend, Lisa Carol Fremont, played by Grace Kelly. And it's interesting as we keep going of how, like, the stuff that's happening outside is kind of mirroring uh, Jeff's relationship with Lisa and mm-hmm. the fears he has with this possible relationship. But we'll delve into that more as we go on. Um, it's currently streaming on Peacock, I believe. Um, if you can watch it there, um, but yeah. So, so Thomas, what's what's your history with Rear Window? Uh, it's probably one of the first Hitchcock movies I saw. I think I think North by Northwest was probably the first one my parents showed me because I was really into like spies as a kid. But but it, this was definitely one that they they approved for me to see younger. Uh, I was a big Jimmy Stewart fan as a kid, and so it was definitely one of my early introductions yeah. to hitchcock and it's one that i've revisited multiple times in an academic setting it's one that i've revisited multiple times just for my own enjoyment uh so yeah long long history of of this movie and you know as a as a student of 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 hitchcock both in in a classroom i've taken a, a hitchcock class mm-hmm. and just reading a lot of stuff about him reading Truffaut's book uh always always a very interesting one to study this is one of his other along with rope this is probably his most interesting yeah. technical film and I, I do think this one pulls off the 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 story side of it a little bit better than i think i think rope is a very interesting technical study in filmmaking yeah while rear window is so well done from a storytelling point of view you kind of forget how technically innovative the movie itself is yeah no i agree completely it's always funny when people like like when they talk about old filmmakers like oh they'd be shooting on film they'd be sticking to the old days but i'm like i can tell you right now i don't think hitchcock would be shooting on film today because I, I think about you're talking about kind of these kind of experimental ideas he goes with if it's rear window if it's rope even dialing for murder they shot that that was supposed to be 3d and they i think they shot it 3d or converted or something and like he stuck with it and it's just it was the timing was off he said like 
basically 3D was a trend of nine days, and I came in on the ninth day. <laughs> uh, because basically, with that, with like within a week or two after them releasing it in 3D, they're like audiences were staying away in droves. Like no one would come to the movie. But so he he was always kind of trying new things out. And uh, for me too, yeah, this was kind of one of my first introductions to Hitchcock. I think I watched it in high school for the first time. And it is one that I'm always like, when you come back and revisit it, you're like, there's certain movies where like you watch and you love. And then after a time period of you not watch them, you're like, oh, is it as good as I remember them? Like, is it is it as like, um, I kind of technically amazing or, or crafted mm. than I remember it. And then you watch it. Oh, this is still just as good uh as i remember it yeah and i think rear window is that way a lot of the time yeah and that that was the really interesting one for me this was of the ones that i did revisit in an academic setting this one was one where i was like i, I remember rear window i saw it when i was a kid i remember yeah. the plot like i remember what happens and then to watch it once i knew what he was doing in the movie it was just like completely eye-opening uh, you know, and it's it's this kind of movie, not to step on any of our, our facts about it in the future, but you can watch the whole movie and never really like process in your mind that the camera almost never leaves the apartment. You know, it, yeah. it's it's it feels so dynamic that you, you never feel like you're stuck in one place, except no. for the way that he wants you to feel like you're stuck in one place. Yeah. I mean, I, I read that he kind of said like this was again, it was the purest version of cinema. Because he's when he's talking to Truffaut, he said like it's the is a cool shop effect, right? You see an image, so he's like you see Jimmy Stewart like looking out the window. That's the one shot. Cut to the dog, a kind of digging at the flower, and then you cut to Jimmy Stewart and he's smiling, and you're like, oh, he's smiling at the dog, and he's like, he's got. But then you switch it up, you keep those same shots, and now it's Miss Torso who's across the way dancing and you keep that same shot of Jimmy Stewart <laughs> smiling. Now you have a whole different effect to it. Mm -hmm. Like he's like, it's purely cinema where it's just, it's cutting it's, it's reaction and it's action reaction. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is a, one of the Hitchcock movies where you can look at it and see exactly where the, you know, the whole American audiences didn't appreciate him as much as French audiences did kind yes. of thing yes. comes into yes. play. Cause you can sit down watch this movie it is a good thriller it's a good romance it's good it's funny you can sit down and just go come out of it and go wow that's a good movie and then all these film nerds like Truffaut can sit down and watch it and come out of it and go oh my god how did he just do that and yeah. and you can still appreciate it from either sense without necessarily either of those things affecting yeah. each other if that yeah. makes sense yeah no, no, like no you, you don't have to understand everything he's doing here to enjoy the the story no you don't have to delve into the whole idea of like it's voyeurism and it's like this is us like we were watching like he was like this is what we did like it's it's like you can just watch it as a thriller and and be kind of be out of the like kind of feel like you're out of the movie in a way but what he's, he's saying a lot in the movie about what it is like because he says like oh like nine out of ten people if they they caught in the window someone across the street like just doing something in the apartment they would stop and watch for a second. They wouldn't close the blinds. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of exploring this idea of us watching uh, things around us to, to the, uh, to the, uh, for them, the people around us, not knowing it's mm -hmm. this idea of privacy and voyeurism and everything. I mean, it's, there's a reason why I feel like this movie has been remade or like reimagined <laughs> every, every, few decades it's like we talked about body double and body doubles very much this movie mixed with vertigo 
I I talked I texted you about this recently. We talked about I think on the Rock Thrillers about like the Voyeurs mm-hmm. on Prime, where it's very much a rear window body double kind of insp- inspired uh, essentially. Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf. Disturbia is one as well. It's like you see every kind of I guess ten to twenty years, um, kind of a a remake of it because it's this idea of like there is something uh it's suspenseful but also kind of enticing about watching essentially it's like well, we, I, I i haven't watched it yet but i know that soderbergh's kimmy is is kind of yeah up the same lines last year the uh woman in the window very uh-huh. very similar yeah so everybody wants to take a stab at vertigo all right at real uh, everybody wants vertigo. to take a stab at real window it seems and probably vertigo at some point too <laughs> but remember it goes yeah. a little bit harder to pull off your own, yeah, your yeah. own twist of it <laughs> yeah uh and so yeah and so when rewatching it this time i i was still still very much floored by it and i i think the one that kind of popped out to me this time was like how sharp the dialogue is in this movie like the banter that Stuart and Kelly have, oh, I yeah. think is fantastic. And we'll talk more about it in favorite scenes, but that was just the first thing I noticed this time. Did you notice anything new this time? I think the, every time I come back to it, especially I feel like as I get older and I get a little bit more emotionally mature, uh, <laughs> just the more and more I'm blown away by the character of Lisa and also Grace Kelly's performance. I think she, she's great. I think this is one of the toughest characters play which is which is something i was thinking a lot about when for for later in the episode when we have to recast but yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can dive more into her character later on but it's so hard to thread this line of like she's she's in love with jeff and he is an asshole <laughs> and she keeps coming back and it's not in like a love she's very strong it's not in a lovesick way and yes she wants to kind of change for him but she also is very comfortable in being herself and yeah and it is such a an inch she's such an interesting character and it would be so easy to play it the wrong way yeah i mean she she is kind of like some people kind of refer to her as like somewhat of an independent woman mm-hmm. in this movie like she she i mean she could i mean she kind of said like she could easily get uh jeff jobs mm-hmm. he's like oh and and like but she's also willing to like i think willing to like go with him in places if he wants to go but she said she likes what she does and she doesn't really need she doesn't really need him but it is like she's trying to tame i guess the 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 wandering man in a way yeah uh, with stewart um but let's dive into kind of how this gets to production how it gets made uh because the story is interesting with how this kind of falls into place so uh while alfred hitchcock had a career that spanned over 50 years and 50 films. Uh, the era from 1950 to 1960 is arguably his peak period uh, of filmmaking. He released 12 films in 10 years, including such films as Strangers on a Train, Doubt and for Murder, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Psycho. Uh, he started the decade under contract at Warner Brothers after spending most of the 1940s and his first dec- decade of making films in America working under contract for David O. Selznick, famously the producer of Gone with the Wind and someone Hitchcock did not get along with. <laughs> As Hitchcock was at Warner Brothers, the Hollywood industry was in the middle of a shift. At the end of the 1940s, the infamous U.S. Supreme Court case United States versus Paramount Pictures took place, which changed the fate of studios the rest of the century. For those who do not know, uh, before this case, major studios in Hollywood ran their own theater chains. 
The case concluded that the studios were creating a monopoly on the industry, and this case forced the studios to get rid of their theaters, thus ending the old Hollywood studio system as America knew it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was basically saying that that Hollywood or studios couldn't control the distribution of their film or basically control every aspect of the film. Uh, That has since changed of late because of streaming. Due to the studios selling off their theaters, studio profits suffered tremendously. One of the studios that suffered the most was Warner Brothers, where Hitchcock was placed at, was was under contract at. Uh, Head studio Jack Warner was known to be a stickler for the budget, so he began slashing costs, letting go several long-term contracts like James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, Betty Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, and Olivia de Havilland. He did keep, however, Errol Flynn and Ronald Reagan, of all people. On February 28, 1953, Warner Brothers officially got rid of their theater chain. And in March of that same year, Warner Brothers halted production on all new projects for 90 days. And studio executives were asked to take a salary cut up to 50%. Wow. Uh, Seeing the possibility of more decisions like this on the horizon, Hitchcock asked his agent, Lou Wasserman, to ask around town for a new contract in a new studio. Wasserman would land a lucrative deal at Paramount Studios, but the only stipulation for the deal was that he could get the deal if he if Hitchcock could adapt one of the five six short stories they had recently optioned from a writer by the name of Cornell Woolrich, and the collection of short stories was known or was called After Dinner Story. Out of the stories in this collection, Hitchcock liked one titled "It Had to Be Murder," about a man who believes his neighbor has murdered his wife. Uh, Hitchcock was looking for a writer to adapt this short story into a movie, and he contacted a writer by the name of John Michael Hayes. At the time, Hayes had written one or two B-movie war move, or war pictures, uh, but most of his work was done on the radio, where he wrote several detective dramas. Hmm. Hitchcock was an avid listener of these radio dramas, and he noticed that Hayes' name kept popping up on the shows he liked. He found out that Hayes and himself were rep by the same agency, so he arranged a dinner meeting with Hayes. Um in a kind of uh, documentary thing, talking with Hayes on the on the Blu-ray and DVD, uh, Hayes says he was very apprehensive about meeting Hitchcock because he was such a big fan of his work and he was worried he would embarrass himself in front of Hitchcock. <laughs> so Hayes, Hayes read, read over the story, the short story, practically memorizing it. When Hayes went to dinner with Hitchcock, they hit it off nicely, but Hitchcock never mentioned the story once. Hitchcock, however, asked him if he was a fan of his work and if he could discuss one of his movies, which was kind of a tryout to see if Hayes understood or could kind of pinpoint what made a Hitchcock film. Uh, Hayes began talking to him about Shadow of a Doubt because when Hayes was in the U.S. Army during World War II, he briefly worked as a projectionist on a war effort project that showed films to uh, soldiers. Only film they had, however, was Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. (laughs) So he showed the film three times a day for 30 days. Wow. Needless to say, he could break down the films backward, the backward, the film backwards and forwards, which is what they did the entire dinner. What Hayes didn't know at the time was that Hitchcock's favorite film he ever made was Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, Hayes thought the dinner went great, but he told his wife he felt like Hitchcock would never hire him because he was so honest about telling Hitchcock what he did wrong with Shadow of a Doubt. <laughs> uh, the next Monday, Hayes received a phone call from Hitchcock's agent because the dinner was on a Friday. Uh, Hitchcock's agent saying he got the job and he was to start immediately. Hayes and Hitchcock began writing the script for the film as Hitchcock was shooting Dial M for Murder, the last film he was doing under Warner Brothers contract uh, uh, or independent contract he has. Hitchcock asked Hayes if he knew anything about Grace Kelly, who was one of the stars of Dial M for Murder. Hayes did not, and Hitchcock told him to spend at least a week with her 
so he could uh, spend a week a week with her so he could know who she was and kind of how she or how she acted because she was going to be a love interest in Rear Window. Uh, however, there was no love interest in the original story, short story. Uh, there was no even uh, Thelma Ritter character, Stella, uh, the nurse. So Hayes had to create a character for Lisa for Fremont uh, based off Grace Kelly, but also he based the character off his wife, who was actually a fashion model at one point, uh, which is what Lisa's kind of occupation is in the film. So mm-hmm. Hayes then wrote a 35-page treatment for Rear Window. Hitchcock liked the treatment, and he submitted it to Paramount, showing that he could make a movie based off one of the short, short, short stories they optioned. Paramount liked it, committed to the film, and Hitchcock got his his uh, his uh, deal with Paramount. Hitchcock then sent the treatment to Jimmy Stewart, and Stewart liked the idea just based off the treatment, and he committed to the film. Hitchcock then sent Hayes to write the first draft of the script. Hayes saying it was delight working for Hitchcock because he let him alone, allowing him to write the whole draft on his own. Hitchcock then provided notes to the second draft, and then allowing Hayes again to go write a draft uninterrupted. After the second draft, Hitchcock and Hayes sat down and broke the script down scene by scene. Hayes said he had almost 200 scenes of dialogue, like 200 broken up, like slug lines. Uh, And after Hitchcock came in and added all of his camera shots and visuals, they had a total of 600 scenes or moments in the movie, uh, which is insane. Uh, In September 1953, Hitchcock began hiring his key personnel for his first Paramount film, which includes cinematographer Robert Burks, editor George Tomasina. I think the first movie that he worked with the work with Hitchcock on, he edited nine movies for Hitchcock. Um, mm. And Burks, I think, shot seven or so of his films. Uh, production designer Hal Piera, and of course, costume designer Edith Head. So now, with, yep. the, with a script in good shape, a talented crew behind the project, and a star-studded cast in front of the camera, Rear Window was ready for production, and that leads us to favorite scenes. So, Thomas, what's one of your favorite scenes of this movie? Man. That's, this is this is a really tough one. I was trying when I was watching last night. I was like trying to trying to keep this in mind. Um, I think all of our character introductions are done so well in this movie. I think the scene introducing Stella is is fantastic because it also kind of introduces Jeff. Although we do get that, you know, we get that the wonderful kind of moving camera yep. through his apartment. That's just like this is everything you need to know about Jeff. Um, it's so well done. But then we, we kind of meet Stella immediately and they've got that back and forth and and we get filled in like all the other info that we didn't have before we get from her. Yeah. And it's it's really, really well done. It, it doesn't come off as exposition. Don't be at all, yeah. even though that's that's what's happening. Yeah. But the the kind of back and forth humor between the two of them, I, I was I was really expecting you to say when you were saying what what the writer's earlier career was i was really expecting you to be like yeah like screwball comedies at some point and i was like oh yeah but um <laughs> yeah they've, everybody's got this just kind of back and forth yeah it's him and stella him and lisa him and uh the detective they're just everyone's just always which is which i love yeah, yeah. i mean that, honestly that's that's the way i talk to people it's <laughs> just like you just kind of throwing insults back and forth it's it's it feels very it feels very authentic yeah, yeah no it does um but yeah so the introduction to stella is great you've got just kind of you're immediately just introduced to her as someone who speaks her mind yeah she's got like some of the best quotes from that movie are in that first like yeah 10 minute scene when she's introduced and and then to go from that into 
introducing Lisa is just such a solid first 20 minutes of a film. She's got the little, you know, Lisa, Carol, Fremont, like with the with the lamps. With the lamps. Ugh, so good. No, I mean that scene I, I I watched it this time and like it's there is there is a, a kind of male gaze to it all, but it's so like it's so sexy. Like her introduction, <laughs> like for a nineteen fifty four film is just so fantastic like it's because mm-hmm. it's so like it's so kind of jarring because like you basically just see her face coming towards camera and yeah. then it's like him kind of waking up and like seeing her and then she kisses him and then like hitchcock slows the kiss down like he makes it a mm-hmm. slow-mo shot and they pull away and that's just like this two like this close-up two shot of their faces Mm-hmm. and it's just like it's so like, again it's this this like flirtatious like they're very flirtatious with one another in this one scene um and it's amazing and like yeah and then you have the her doing the lamp of like like who are you and she's like <laughs> i'm lisa carol Fremont, and then she like shows off like the dress she got like i think yeah i think their banter together is is fantastic throughout the movie and mm-hmm. that opening scene specifically is just one of the best intros of a character i think in hitchcock's filmography um yeah. it's it's uh, so strike so memorable basically how's your leg it hurts a little and your stomach empty as a football do you love life I'm not too active anything else bothering you mm-hmm for you. Reading from top to bottom. Lisa. Carol. Fremont. Is this the Lisa Fremont who never wears the same dress twice? Only because it's expected of her. It's right off the Paris plane. You think it'll sell? Well, that depends on the quote, you know. Let's see, now there's the airplane ticket over and import duties, hidden taxes, profit markup. A steal at $1,100. $1,100? They ought to list that dress on the stock exchange. Donald Ritter, I think, to go back to her, is like, she feels like, almost like the audience surrogate in a way. Like, mm-hmm. she always has, she always has a comment for something. I think, yeah. j- jumping ahead a little bit, where it's like, uh, when at one point, when they're like, talking about like uh what's buried in the flower bed at one point mm-hmm. and and kelly and kelly's just like mrs thorwald and and delamino's just like she's like that's not how this works like she's they can't bury a whole body yeah. whole body like that yeah, unless unless he buried her uh standing, standing up. up yeah i see he's like, i don't know about you i don't know if you've been in any cemeteries lately but unless and then the, she's always like stella <laughs> or it's like or or when she's like describing like I wonder, or, or I wonder if we cut her up in the bathtub. It's like what, at one point, so I wonder if we cut her up in the bathtub. I mean, that's the one way to wash the water out. And like Stewart's eating his dinner, or and he just like stops eating his dinner. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about cutting up a body, but she's always like, she'll always say that. And yeah, when Kelly goes, "Sell it," she goes, "What? We're all thinking it," is what she would yeah. say. <laughs> but you know, yeah, their chemistry together, those three together, are really fun. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it is like you think of like all of Hitchcock's movies, I don't know if there's like a trio that's as good, like in a film together. I don't know. Cause he, cause he wrote 
a lot two people stuff well he made yeah. with a lot of two people but very rarely like three people in a room just like discussing stuff outside like certain movies like, like rope or lifeboat or something but in this period mm-hmm. of 1950s like it was like ready to have like just three people in a room kind of like bantering back and forth with one another in a hitchcock movie yeah especially and you know it's so kind of surprising you come into this movie about isolation mm-hmm. and it's really not about isolation no. it's really about the relationships you have with the people around you yeah maybe somebody who who wishes he was in isolation sometimes but realizes that he has to yeah true truly being in isolation makes him recognize the value of the people around him but yeah but yeah you know this is one of those like i said you know i watched it as a kid and i was like oh yeah that's the one about the neighbor that murders somebody <laughs> and and every time i come back to it i'm even more so like no this is a not a rom-com it's not really a romance i feel like that yeah. that makes it sound too sappy but yeah. it's it's somewhere in between it's about it's about these two people yeah. coming together it's like just about it's about stewart realizing like yo i should marry this woman that loves me like i yeah. was like i feel like stewart's i said like stewart's toxic trait is that he doesn't want a perfect relationship mm-hmm. like because he's like he's like oh she's just too perfect <laughs> it's like kind of yeah. what he says it's like she's too perfect for me it's like she she does stuff on her own like she doesn't need me like she loves me. She takes care of me. She she can never she, hitchhike through Afghanistan yeah. with me. <laughs> she can never just like she's too she's too tied to her stuff. Like you, she's too materialistic or whatever. And that's that's another one of those things when you're talking about how realistic she feels as as a as a performance and as a person. Like they have that scene when he's just a complete asshole to her. When he is like, "You could not live my life," and she's really trying. Yeah to like find some sort of middle ground and he's he's just refusing he will not compromise and finally she gets up and leaves him and there's there's that great shot of her at the doorway where you can't even see her eyes so you can't tell if she's truly hurt if she's just mad and she says i'm going away and we're probably not going to see each other for a very long time and then and then she's back the next (laughs) night but but not you know never in a way that it always feels like she's back the next night because she wants to she be wants there. to be yeah not because he's or not yeah it's, and not and i don't know if it's like she's never lovesick in this movie yeah it's like, not, that's, like it could be so easy to play this character as lovesick yeah. and especially in this period of time with the way that men viewed women it would be so easy to make this character just be like lovesick yeah and and she's she's not she's she's her own person yeah and as as much as she does love Jeff, you know, if he decided, all right, my leg's healed, I'm going back to Afghanistan, she'd be fine. Yeah. Like <laughs> she's like, fine. He needs her more than she needs him. I agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. I think I think she would I think she just is truly in love with him and like wants to take care of him. She kinda understands like, hey, he's he's been cooked up in this house for six weeks. He's just going a little crazy. Like he's thinking mm-hmm. about stuff, but like w- to go with kind of the idea of like their love, what I didn't realize till this time kind of, or really think about was that like when Hitchcock talked about it in the book, it's like uh, every, every apartment around him represents something dealing with love or lack of mm-hmm. love or marriage. It's like, it's, he, he said how basically um, Thorwald's apartment mirrors Stewart's apartment. In Thorwald's apartment, it's the wife that's bedridden, and it's the husband that has to take care of her, and right. Ram Burr's character, uh, Mister Thorwald, and he becomes tired of her. So it's it's a it's a mirror image of what's happening over on the other side, 
with Stuart being the bedridden person or the wheelchair bound person. And Kelly's the one that can come and go as she pleases. Um, when you look around, it's like it's it's Mrs. Lonely Hearts of her mm-hmm. her being the kind of like constantly trying to find love the entire movie um, to a point where she becomes suicidal because she can't find it. Or it's kind of the the love stricken kind of piano player across the way that's just writing about that was writing songs about probably like a love that he once had or it's to the left of him it's this newlywed couple uh Mm -hmm. that's going that's happening or it's the couple that has the dog the the childless couple that has a dog uh that represents this this kind of married life or then you have the 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 dancing miss torso uh Mm -hmm. who's across the way who's kind of could be kind of like what he would be giving up in a way because like she's always just out in the town all the time but then you kind of have that that kind of fun little reveal at the end that she has a man she's been waiting for who's in who's in the military yeah um yeah well and that that goes into because they have that you know they have that great scene where he's another another like i don't want to i don't want to give this movie you know from from uh was it 58 yeah 54 54 54 i don't want to give this movie from 54 i want to say it's like too progressive or like <laughs> i don't want to give Hitchcock, Hitchcock yeah. too much feminist credit yeah, but yeah let's not do that there there is that great scene where he is like oh you know this is i look at miss torso's apartment this is what i imagine your apartment's like and lisa can take like one look at miss torso and just be like you like have read the girl completely yeah. wrong and maybe it's because you see her dancing around in her bra all day long but like you have the like most wrong read on this person and and i know exactly what she's going through. yeah she's she's like oh no she's not in love with any of these men like yeah. this is just like she's she's most times like she's trying to like i, I guess her whatever like dancing or what like rehearsal for dancing that she does and it's men in the house that are held they're they're part of that um yeah. and she's got that great line where she's like yeah she's not in love with any of those men and he's like how can you tell and she said well didn't you say it resembled my apartment yeah oh, oh yeah so good no it's it's or then like two it's like later when uh uh i think when kelly's like she's like uh when he's like, talking about like looking across the way at miss torso she's like I'll, ha- I'll i'll move across the way and dance or whatever dance whatever be- the, before the dance of the seven veils seven veils before before you can do that or something yeah there can't be that much difference between people and the way they live. We all eat, talk, drink, laugh, wear clothes. Well, now look. Now look. I, I... If you're saying all this because you don't want to tell me the truth, because you're hiding something from me, then maybe I can understand. I'm not hiding anything. It's just that it I It doesn't want... make sense. What's so different about it here from over there or any place you go that one person couldn't live in both places just as easily? Some people can, if you just let me what explain What is it for traveling you? from one place to another taking pictures? This is like being a tourist on an endless vacation. Okay, now that's your opinion. You're entitled to it. Now let me give you my It's side. ridiculous to say that it can only be done by a special private little group of anointed people. I made a simple statement, a, a true statement, but I'll, I can back it up if you just shut up for a minute. But if your opinion is as rude as your manner, I don't think I care to hear it. Oh, come on, now simmer down. Yeah. You, I can't fit in he, here, you can't fit in there. I mean, according to you, people should be born, live and die on the same spot. Shut up! again the way he shoots this movie or hitchcock shoots this movie with this being so contained it's like outside of you have kind of two instances where he sh- takes the camera outside the apartment yeah. it's the, the the only the only two times when everyone in the courtyard yeah is paying attention to the same thing really yeah and the, and they said basically takes the camera from subject subjective to objective 
where mm-hmm. it's when the dog is killed and then it's this kind of it's the reprimanding by the the, the woman and the and the, the 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 childless couple who's kind of complaining about what it is to be neighbors and how no one cares about one another and we're so close together but no one no one no one pays attention no one cares like why did you harm the one person this in, in, in this complex that like was nice to everyone mm. and i again i love the going with that i love because in that mo- moment so ram burr mr thorwald is the one character that doesn't come to the window mm-hmm. he's staying in the back just smoking a cigarette usually like uh, yeah little that, flicker that of the light. Just, this this is you know if you're looking at the way hitchcock shoots all the, all his you know all of his films and he he's He's got a lot of different things that he plays with in each film. And this one, the, the most obvious kind of tenet of, of filmmaking is point of view. But he's also I think this is his strongest film as far as like negative space, which was not a big like negative space. We've talked about it a little bit with um, German expressionism, but like it was not big in Hollywood at that time. No. It was like light everything, show us everything. And he's got some some really, really like we said with that seen earlier when grace kelly's leaving and he purposefully doesn't show you her eyes so you can't really read what she's thinking um but i think because of the importance of point of view in this film he he's also got this he really puts a lot of importance on negative space and what especially jeff can and can't see is so important yeah so yeah that 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 shot where thorwald's apartment is just completely black and then you see that cigar come in and out as he puffs on it the embers that 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 shot feels like so far ahead of its time. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree, and and he does it like several times, and like I yeah, and speaking of that, I just love the way like you see Stewart like especially early in the morning when he's awake like watching the house like the the apartments and you're seeing just mostly dark apartments and then all of a sudden you see this like the light of his cigar the embers of his cigar puffing mm-hmm. um the few times it happens um but yeah and and the other part that goes outside is when when stewart is being attacked by mr thorwald and he's about to fall out of the apartment um another thing i like too i I like when like again going back to stewart and kelly like when stewart's trying to convince kelly that his neighbor killed his wife and she doesn't believe him and it's like again this is in terms like a scene what they break down very well that i think hayes and hitchcock do very well is like every scene very much has a purpose it feels like in this movie mm-hmm. and you have a scene like that where like they're arguing back and forth back and forth kelly doesn't believe him and at the very end kelly's like tell me every- okay I, th- I think it's, it's i don't know if it's the the jewelry or something that happens where she sees something where she's like tell me everything again mm-hmm. like what happened or whatever and she begins to believe because the jewelry that kind of keys her in that like oh a, a woman wouldn't go on a trip uh without her jewelry is kind of what she says at one point i don't know if that's that same scene um but there there it's it's again it's like what 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 wendell Corey, the detective kind of his detective friend kind of says like you're just like you're passing the time and you're trying to create like false stories about your neighbors like you but you're, you're going kind of crazy um but but yeah uh any other scenes that you like i do love the kind of when he does take the action out into the courtyard i mean really what i'm speaking to is when when lisa makes her way over to thorwald's yes, apartment yes i think it's just that that's when you really get the scope of that set yeah and he is really able to i think that's when he's able to create the most tension 
with with kind of the camera still being stuck exactly where it yeah. is and it's so like because again he can't hear he can't hear her over there and like he's called the cops luckily cops would probably never show up that fast uh in real life <laughs> um but yeah it's like you're he's, yeah, i feel like in new york they had like at that time they had the beats you know you had like nearby yeah a, a in, cop that was set Grinch to like Village. a three block area or whatever yeah but like but yeah and it's the kind of like but it's a great shot or it's a, it's kind of a little like little twist to it is like she finds his his uh thorwald mrs thorwald's wedding ring and puts it mm-hmm. on and it's kind of this double meaning of like i found the wedding wedding ring when it shows the shot of her like kind of flashing the ring but also it's like oh i finally got a wedding ring on me <laughs> like but you <laughs> wouldn't give me and then it's that pan up to raymond burr when he looks yeah. down at it and sees it and then looks dead at camera and he's yeah. like oh no like and then I've you hit that caught. with the like that is so great and then the um the lo- yeah, when his phone rings and he picks it up and he thinks it's a the detective and then it's just silence on the other end that is such a great kind of just like stomach drop moment yeah. and he realized <laughs> and then like, right then he realizes who it is yeah and then it's him showing up and again talking about negative space like when you see Rand burr coming to the apartment it's just a silhouette of him standing in the doorway mm-hmm. and that's when like again i think it's kind of great of like stewart like flashing the light the light bulbs uh from the camera like i hitchcock said the truffaut he was just like oh like i want to make sure if i give them a job i want to make sure they do something with that job like to kind of save themselves because i want to make sure like and i leave no stone unturned with that occupation so that's why Mm -hmm. he has stuart flashing the light bulb because he's a photographer photographer he has to use that skill to save himself maybe she died where's the doctor where's the undertaker she could be sleeping under sedatives. He's in there now. There's nothing to see. What do you mean? There is something. I've seen it through that window. I've seen bickering and family quarrels and mysterious trips at night, knives and saws and ropes. And now since last evening, not a sign of the wife. All right, now you tell me where she is. I don't what's know. What's she doing? Where is she? Maybe he's leaving his wife. I don't know. I don't care. Lots of people have knives and saws and ropes around their houses. Not, and not lots the... of men don't speak to their wives all day. Lots of wives nag and men hate them and trouble starts, but very, very few of them end up in murder, if that's what you're thinking. Uh, it's pretty hard for you to keep away from that word, isn't it? You, isn't you it? could see all, all that he did, couldn't you? Well, of course. You I could see it. because the shades were up and, and, and he walked along the corridor and the street and the backyard. Same in the backyard, touching oh, the flowers. Jeff, do you think a murderer would let you see all that? That he wouldn't pull the shades down and hide behind them? Just where he's being clever, he's being normal. Oh, and that's where you're them. not being clever. Be just being a, a murderer would never parade his crime in front of an open window. Why not? Why, for all you know, there's probably something a lot more sinister going on behind those windows. So let's move on to Onset Life. So production for the film began November 27th, 1953 at Paramount Studios. And the first thing that was shot was the opening title sequence that introduced the apartment courtyard and our lead character, L.B. Jeffries. Uh, The shot apparently took 10 takes to get right. And speaking of the courtyard, let's talk about how it was created. Because at that point, it was one of the most massive sets ever built for a, I guess, a production of this kind. Um, Production designers Hal Piera and Joseph McMillan Johnson spent six weeks building the set. The set that Hitchcock and team had had in mind was so big that it would not fit in any of the Paramount sound stages. So they had to tear up the floor of the sound stage using the basement floor as the floor level. Uh, so the buildings could be built up high enough. The whole set was almost a hundred feet wide, 180 feet long and 40 feet high in the air. <laughs> They built seven apartment buildings 
and three other buildings on the opposite side of the street. This resulted in a total of 31 apartments with at least eight, possibly 12 fully furnished apartments. It also seems that the apartments in Mr. Thorwald's building also had working plumbing. So I guess his Thorwald's apartment, Mrs. Lonely Heart's apartment, maybe the couple above. Um, they also built a massive drainage system on set for the rain sequences in the film. Uh, and when designing a set, uh, it costs $9,000 to design and set and $72,000 to build, which is a little under $900,000 today. Um, wow. and one of the biggest obstacles about a set that big is having to light it. Um, cinematographer Robert Burks used over 1000 arc lights, big arc lights, and then 2000 smaller lights that were used to light the set. It is said that whatever light on the Paramount lot that was not in use at the time was on the rear window set to light the complex. <laughs> uh, they had created four different lighting setups that could represent four different times of day and night in the film. Uh, and there are apparently remote switches that could control the lighting in Jeff's apartment. Uh, the lights, however, one day got so hot that it set off the sprinkler system and it plunged the entire set into total darkness. Uh, Hitch calmly asked the assistant to get him an umbrella and tell him when it stopped raining. Um, speaking of Hitchcock, it seems him and Stewart had a very unique friendship uh, compared to him and his other previous leading men. It is said they had a very intimate working relationship, speaking very little to one another, except in looks and short phrases. Hitchcock said he liked working with Stewart because he liked his workmanlike approach. His script was always in his hand. He said he enjoyed him more than Cary Grant because Grant was fussy and demanding. Um, but co-star Wendell Corey said that Stewart could have a, wa a whopping big ego and could intimidate even Hitchcock by out-shouting and out-arguing him if he thought a scene wasn't working. Uh, Corey plays the detective. Uh, Corey, because mm -hmm. he worked with several, several films with Stewart, he goes, Corey said, there was steel under all that mush when referring to Stewart. Um, when talking about Hitchcock's direction, Thelma Ritter said that Hitchcock never told actors if he liked their performance, and if he hated it, he'd like he, would have, he, was, uh, he would look like he was about to throw up, is what it was. Um, but it seems everyone loved working with Grace Kelly, most descriptions that people give is that she was full of warmth and immense talent with Stewart saying she had a complete understanding of the way motion picture acting is carried out. Also, practically every man on set fell in love with her. It sounds like, uh, which is what everyone says about anytime Kelly was on a set. However, there was one person on set that did not, uh, like Grace Kelly. Uh, and that was, or didn't like, or was worried about her when that was Jimmy Stewart's wife, Gloria. <laughs> now, Kelly, had not been working in Hollywood that long. Uh, she'd only been she'd only been her first movie, I think, in 1951. Uh, but she had gained a reputation for possibly having affairs with her leading men. Uh, I'm reporting this because this has been reported by several people. Uh, there have been numerous reports that she had affairs with Gary Cooper on High Noon, Clark Gable on Mogambo, William Holden on The Bridges of Tokori, and Bing Crosby on The Country Girl. Uh, but the most infamous one was with Ray Milan on the set of Dial M for Murder. Uh, when Milan's wife Muriel, Muriel found out, she threw him out of the house, and Ray Milan planned on divorcing her, uh, his wife of 20 years, for Kelly until he found out how much a divorce would cost him. <laughs> uh, and apparently one of Muriel uh, Milan's best friends was Jimmy Stewart's wife, Gloria. Uh, she asked Stewart not to take the role, uh, but because he did... It was said that Gloria was on set constantly watching her husband and Kelly. 
Uh, nothing happened between them, but co-star Thelma Ritter said that she could tell Stewart enjoyed Kelly's flirtations with him, saying, I think it took him back to his fancy-free, footloose bachelor days. I don't say he flirted, but he didn't mind. To, he didn't seem to mind it either. <laughs> uh, since the camera was mostly in Jeff's apartment, Hitchcock would only work within that room. So for the actors in the other apartments, they had earpieces uh, so he could radio them his directions uh, for the scenes. Because of this, it was resulted in one funny moment during the rain sequence uh, when the couple who were pulling the mattress up off the fire escape to go back inside, Hitchcock gave each actor conflicting directions. Uh, the man <laughs> was to pull the mattress one way, not knowing the one was told by Hitchcock to pull the mattress the other way. This resulted in the couple truly struggling and fighting with one another over the mattress, and the husband character accidentally fell through the window because of the struggle. And you see it in the movie. He kind of like falls mm -hmm. forward. It's all because of that. Um, the film would eventually wrap on January 14th, 1954, which was apparently was shot fairly quickly, especially with the holiday break in between because they start the 27th. Uh, they have Christmas break and New Year's break and they finish up on January 20 or January 14th. Um, and that takes us into the aftermath. Now, I'm not, we ain't talking about this, but I'm not sure if, if this was put on the set or in post-production, but Hitchcock spent a lot of time developing the sound design for this film, which included natural sounds and music that would drift across the courtyard when the camera would pan across it. You can even hear the songwriter during doing several covers of uh, kind of popular songs at the time, like Nat King Cole, Cole's Mona Lisa or Dean Mar Martin's That's Amore. Um, mm -hmm. The sound design's amazing. Like you kind of forget yeah. like how amazing it really because like you see like you hear the streets going, you hear the music, you hear kind of the birds chirping. You hear, you hear kind of everything that's happening in this world, and it's just it's balanced so well. Franz Waxman, a frequent collaborator of Hitchcock's, would do the score for the film, but his contributions were very limited due to the diegetic kind of natural sounds and songs Hitchcock used for the score uh, in the film. Uh, Waxman scored the opening titles and closing titles, and also the piano tune the songwriter plays throughout the movie that he's crafting uh, mm -hmm. called Lisa. Uh, this is apparently one thing Hitchcock disliked about the film because he wanted to showcase a song's creation from start to finish with the final credits being done with an orchestral version of the song. Uh, he felt Waxman did not capture what he was going for and the audience didn't notice the progression and the changing of the song throughout the movie. And it would be the final film that Waxman worked on for Hitchcock. Uh -huh. um, the film premiered on August 4th, 1954, at the Rivoli Theater in New York City. But it wasn't just a regular premiere. It was a benefit world premiere with 2,000 spectators, some of which were United Nations officials and prominent members of the social and entertainment worlds. And it was it was a benefit premiere because it helped raise money for the American Korean Foundation. I'm not sure what this organization was because it was set up toward the end of the Korean, the Korean War, which ended a year before the film's premiere. So the money, I believe, might have been going to veterans or something at the time. Um, hmm. But that's what it was. Um, the film would not receive a wide release until almost a month later on September 1st, 1954, where it was met with unanimous praise. Uh, many critics praised it for being a first-class thriller and one of Hitchcock's best. But again, like you said, not discussed in the way that the French critics did. It's just, it was a, it was a tense thriller is kind of what it was. Um, the film would also be a hit with audiences grossing over $5 million off a $1 million budget in its initial run. I believe in re-releases, it's made somewhere between 27 to $37 million in total um, wow. over the years. Okay. 
Um, and with all that praise and financial success, Rear Window seemed like a favorite for the Oscars. It received four Oscar nominations for Best Sound, Best Cinematography, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Director. Absent, however, are nominations for Acting, Best Picture, and Production Design for that massive set they built. It seems like, just a, a kind of a side thing, it seems like the 27th Academy Awards would be a, uh, a famous one uh, up to that point. It's remembered for several things. Uh, On the Waterfront was nominated for 12 Oscars at that point, winning eight. The most famous win being Marlon Brando's win for his lead, leading per performance in that movie. Uh, up to that point, Brando had received four straight Oscar nominations in four straight years for Best Leading Actor, a feat that is yet to be surpassed. Hmm. The Best Actress category was filled with historical significance and controversy. Um, nominated for the in the category was Dorothy Dandridge for Carmen Jones, making her the first black actress to be nominated for Best Leading Actress. Also nominated was Jane Wyman for uh, Magnificent Obsession, Audrey Hepburn for Sabrina, Judy Garland for A Star is Born, and Grace Kelly for The Country Girl. So Grace Kelly gets a nomination without Rear Window. Um, Garland was the odds-on favorite because people saw her role in A Star is Born as the perfect comeback story. Uh, Garland had just had her third child, so she could not be in attendance. But the Academy sent cameras to her house to broadcast her speech from bed due to the likelihood that Garland would win. Um, but Kelly would surprisingly win the Oscar at the only one of her career. Um, Groucho Marx would later write Judy Garland a telegram saying that was the biggest robbery since Brinks. <laughs> and Brinks was a famous robbery a few years prior in Boston. Uh, and it was the largest robbery in American history until 1984. Also that year, another big upset was uh, a, a song from A Star Is Born, The Man That Got Away also lost best original song, as did that song from White Christmas we talked about. Yep. Um, to three three coins in a fountain. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Which we both said we did not but, know. That, no, but it's in plain strange automobiles of all things. But I want to ask the question here, because I said Grace Kelly won for the country girl. And that mm. begs the question, did Grace Kelly have one of the best runs or like best years in film history? Because she made five movies in 1954 alone. Really? Yeah. She made Dial in for Murder. Yeah, great. Rear Rear Window, The Country Girl, which won her the Oscar. Um, she also starred in a movie called Green Fire, which I've not heard of. I don't know that one. And The Bridges of Tokari, uh, with uh, William Holden. That that's that is a hot year. I mean, she she only made movies one, two, three, four, five, six years. Yeah. She made one, two, three. And then she moved on to bigger things. She got yeah. She got married and became a princess. <laughs> Yeah, I think she does high noon with Grace with with, uh, with Gary Cooper. She works with John Ford uh, for Magambo with Clark Gable. She does three films with Hitchcock, and then she ends her career with High Society with Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby. Mm -hmm. For an actress that was so big, and also she had controversy too because of the Ray Milan scandal in a way, because she was labeled by Hedda Hopper in the press as a as a home wrecker, basically. Mm -hmm. So even with all that bad press she wins an oscar and like ha and just is like is there for like six years and that's that's it yeah and it's still talked about today because of the i think i would say all three hitchcock films are still talked about in some way but then high noon as well um yeah and then high society has its fans too so mm -hmm. like for someone that was so big so quickly she was not around that long and i just think it's like it's a it's one of the best I mean, again, one of the best years for six, five movies in one year. Yeah. 
they made movies a lot faster back then they which did. of course they kind of had to like you didn't you didn't get to you know there's that quote that just came out this week where andrew garfield was like all right i just did like three movies last year i'm gonna take some time to myself yeah and it's just like you, you couldn't do that back then no. you're under contract and it was like you're making three movies this year and then you're making four next year yeah so yeah i think i do think for better or for worse yeah you could you couldn't make a, a run like that back then because you were being kind of forced into these contracts but then if you got into a good contract with a studio that really liked you yeah they could put you in literally all of their strongest projects mm-hmm across multiple genres and you could have just a kind of crazy run like that yeah but no it's just it's 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 time to see so yeah um and so yeah so now as i said rear window has developed a massive following over time is considered by many as one of hitchcock's greatest films and one and sometimes people say it was the greatest films of all time um pretty much being named in like every kind of greatest films of all time list it feels like nowadays um it was 42 on afi's 100 greatest movies of all time uh it was added to the national film registry in 1997 uh it was uh listed by sight and sound as the 53rd greatest film of all time so it's always kind of in the around the top 50 or so films of all time um Mm -hmm. number three mystery of all time afi top 100 and i said it's been it's been referenced and remade many times afterwards uh and countless and several decades um so yeah so what worked about this film thomas <laughs> the set the set yeah it's just absolutely insane that they built that whole thing but it but it's it's integral to yeah. the film um the chemistry between the two of them mm-hmm. as and like i said especially just kind of grace kelly's performance because yeah. it would be so easy for that character to go poorly and and we've 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 talked about i don't i mean we haven't actually talked about vertigo on this podcast but <laughs> we've, we've talked you and I, about vertigo, you and I have before, talked about vertigo but, at least yes yes but kind of the the genius of the hitchcock jimmy stewart pairing mm-hmm. and and a lot of jimmy stewart's later in his life career choices was yeah. that he was making these choices based off of this all shucks uh frank capra persona he had built up as a as a young man and so in in all of his movies with hitchcock you've got this kind of darkness to him and and in different ways obviously vertigo is going to be the most dark but in this one i mean he he is an outright asshole (laughs) most of the movie and and we do kind of forgive him for it because he's jimmy stewart and he's got that kind of like he 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 endears himself to you for sure and and so i think i think the cast is just perfect yeah. in this throughout and they all work so well together and and so you know for all the technical stuff that that absolutely works the the point of view camera and holding it yeah. through the entire film which is like someone else could make I mean, like we said a lot of people have made yeah. this movie <laughs> and haven't done that yeah and and that's part of why they're it's not as successful yeah. um and then the way that they do sound, the way that they do music, it's it's just such a it's so devoted to total immersion mm-hmm. in a time when people weren't really. It's not that they didn't care about yeah. it, but it just wasn't this kind of thing. It wasn't yeah. at, you weren't as concerned with like, I'm going to put the audience right there. Yeah. Um, well, it's also something you didn't see on this level of budget. 
Like this is yeah. this feels very much like a B movie plot. This could be a this this was a B movie plot. Like a people mm-hmm. think like, oh, I've I've seen kind of like there's another movie called uh um I just saw it because one uh Wendell Corey's also in this movie. It's called Sorry Wrong Number, and it's about like I think it's Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, yeah, Barbara Stanwyck overhears a murder plot on her phone on like the party mm. line or whatever, and she's like, "Oh my god, there's gonna be a murder!" And like that's a 1940s B movie plot, basically, mm-hmm. um, that was done, I guess, six years later or whatever by Hitchcock in a very different way, but does it in such a artist's way, artistic way, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I said he sticks to it. Like it's like. Like I say, by double or the voyeurs or whatever, it's like they always have moments to break outside the apartment mm-hmm. in some way. But Hitchcock never, like besides the two instances we've talked about, never does. And he keeps yeah. he keeps you in in Stewart's uh, perspective because it it builds up to the point when Ram Ray- Burr comes in and kind of like tries to attack Stewart, and we're stuck there because we because mm-hmm. the whole idea that Hitchcock says like we also looked. It wasn't just Stuart. We were with Stuart. We were partners in crime with Stuart. We looked as well. So we had to suffer the consequences for it. Um, but yeah, direction's amazing. I think you said set's amazing. I like cinematography because it's I love the Technicolor look to it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. The dresses. The dresses. Edith Head really nailed, knocks it out of the park with those dresses and they just change constantly. Um, I think too. I read. I couldn't verify this because I had. I read it afterwards, but they said that a lot of the people that with the people they were wearing across the way in all these different places sometimes matches what Grace Kelly wears in some of her dresses. So like at one point, Miss Lenny Hartz is wearing a certain uh, emerald green or something that uh, Kelly later wears in one of her dresses, like the with the green mm. uh, mm-hmm. green skirt. Basically, it's the same color as Miss Lenny Hartz's dress. So it kind of it said there was repeats of that uh, within there. Um, again, kind of going with the fact that across the way represents kind of Stewart's mindset about marriage and and everything. Um, yeah. So did anything not work about this movie, Thomas? You know, this is the first time, and and I feel like every time I watch this movie, I watch it in like higher and higher def. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of the dubs I, I noticed a, some some of the dubs uh, this time I noticed were off. Okay. Um, as when, when you're kind of which i'm sure they didn't record like when you're kind of overhearing yeah because yeah. you know they're shooting from this apartment set and then they've got people in these other sets i'm sure they didn't record audio but uh, a couple of them i noticed specifically when you kind of get the conclusion to miss lonely hearts yeah. and she's she's up there with the songwriter yeah. like nothing that she <laughs> says lines up <laughs> with with what she's saying up there yeah no it's it's fine when you, when you watch these older films have now been like bit 4k or whatever it's like you start to kind of see the more of the imperfections that were that were there originally Um, and i had honestly i can't remember the last time i watched this movie but i had forgotten it really has not aged well the the babysitter at the detective's apartment when he calls over to call the detective like that is just like oof Wait, what? Like, say it, which part? Because I'm now I'm blanking when, on that part. When, when he he goes to call, so the first time he goes to call the detective, it's like his wife that yeah. picks up. Yeah. But um, the second time he calls, it's this woman who says she's the babysitter, and it is just a very okay. uh, disrespectful caricature gotcha. of an African American woman's dialect. Gotcha. And it is, I I had never really noticed that one before in the past, but it is it is rough and it really takes you out of this scene because it's it sounds like some it's it's like it's like a very southern yeah accent 
and dialect and you're just like this is this is new york like who made that creative choice to have watch that, that person part. do that I, I must have missed that at some point um okay on reverse cast so there was I, I can't find one that was supposed to be in this movie but i did find something out about a, a person who wasn't almost in this movie because they turned down another they got a role they got offered for another movie and that's grace kelly uh she turned down the lead the lead love interest in On the Waterfront with Brando hmm. to Rear Window instead. Apparently, she said she was living in New York at the time, but she said uh, On the Waterfront would have been better because it was in New York and she liked being in New York when Rear Window, Rear Window was in L.A., but she wanted to work with Hitchcock again, so she went and did Rear, Rear Window instead. And there's also kind of the politics of working with Kazan. Uh, yeah, because yeah, yeah, I put that in the count of like it's it's the it's the it's the Communist House of Un-Americans Committee stuff having this point in time. Well, and then Hitchcock, because that was that was Eva Marie Saint, right? Ended up doing yes, it. Yes, ended up so, doing North by Northwest. So she was in North by Northwest. Yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, speaking of that, just after Grace Kelly, just Hitchcock was just trying to find the next Grace Kelly for like the rest yes. of his career. Um, all right. So film facts. Um, after the success of Rear Window, screenwriter John Michael Hayes would work on three more movies for Hitchcock, uh, including To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, Hitchcock made Raymond Burr look like David O. Selznick, the producer that he worked with that he hated so much. Hmm. Um, he gave him the same glasses O. Selznick wore, curled his hair like Selznick, and told him certain mannerisms to use that O. Selznick also did. Did they did they dye his hair white for this I one? think I, I so. Raymond Burr, I don't didn't have a full no, head of white it, hair. No, no, not at this point because it's it's point, the mid fifties. Because yeah. he was still, I think he was doing Perry Mason stuff at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the level of pettiness from Hitchcock is just kind of insane to me. He's just like, <laughs> we're going to make yes. him look like David Oselznik because he's he's the villain of my life. Um, the film negative was damaged considerably as a result of color dye fading as early as the 1960s. Nearly all the yellow image dyes had faded. Uh, despite that, the despite fears that the film had been uh, damaged, preservation experts were able to restore the film nearly to its original coloration. Uh, I think in the 90s is what it was. Mm. Um, outside the short story, three events inspired certain elements of Rear Window's story. The relationship between Jeff and Lisa was inspired by a love affair Ingrid Bergman had on the production of Notorious uh, with war photographer Robert uh, Kappa. Uh, apparently, it also broken his leg during the time. Um, hmm. The two other events deal with deal with the movie deal with the murder, and they were apparently apparently inspired by two cases. Um, one of the cases was a man by the name of Patrick Mahone who murdered his pregnant mistress. Yeah, this is going to be a kind or a night for the faint of heart. These next two stories, um, basically mm-hmm. dismembered her body and allegedly, according to Hitchcock, threw body parts off a train window and then burned the head in the fireplace is what it was. So the, mm. the head, I, I think it was the head idea is the, is the idea of the, the head being buried in the, uh, in the garden um and that was kind of a key thing he took from that the other one uh uh hitchcock noted was from a doctor or from a doctor in 1910 case dr harley harvey crippen um crippen was an american living in london who poisoned his wife uh dismembered her as well and then told the told the police that she had moved to los angeles um crippen was eventually caught after his secretary with whom he was having an affair with um, was seen wearing her jewelry. Apparently, I've also read that they found uh, 
they found them on an ocean liner is what it was they they tried to run away together and they they made him either look like a made made the secretary look like a sailor or Crippen's son so no one know <laughs> that they were in a relationship together um and i'll have a question regarding that later um the actor portraying the songwriter do you know who that was and the and the yes okay you do okay alvin and the chipmunks right alvin and the chipmunks R- ross uh bagadisarian i apologize to his family for mispronouncing that name if i did uh he would later become famous four years later when he created alvin the chipmunks and would provide the voices for all of them in the early songs of the television show you know the, the last time i watched this movie a couple years ago i distinctly remember i went to pull him up i was like i wonder who that guy was and I pulled him up and on IMDb, it's like most known for Rear Window and then yeah. Almost Famous. And I was like, what in the world did this guy have to do with Almost Famous? And I pulled it up and they used the Chipmunk song on yeah. the soundtrack, the, the Christmas song. Yep. Um, the last thing I have with Film Facts is there was a um, there was a court case later on about this movie done with copyright issues. Apparently, after uh, uh, Corn- Cornell Woolrich passed away... There were issues with the rights. So Hitchcock and Stewart had actually formed a, a production company in the 1953 that bought the movie rights for the short story. After Woolrich died uh, in 1968, it was before the expiration year of the copyright. Um, it reverted to Chase Manhattan Bank. Chase would sell the movie rights for $650 to a literary agent. Yeah, literary agent. Uh, uh, Sheldon uh uh ambid abend yeah uh, Shel- Sel- sheldon abend abend refused to honor Woolwich's original agreement to renew the copyright and assign it to the owner or instead or he basically kept the copyright didn't let them extend it uh and he would sue stewart when the movie was shown on television <laughs> so basically saying he owned the right to the movie is what it was i don't know like what the, i don't know court terms that well but it sounds like that they he he won or something basically it's like because the death the 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 rights reverted back to the original uh copyright owner which is why i think in the 1998 remake of it with christopher reeve um a ben gets a producing credit on the film for for some reason so Hmm. i think that's like to make up for i don't know what it is um but yeah and it was a remake if i didn't mention that earlier with christopher reeve and daryl hannah in the lead role all right so story questions do you have a story question? Because I have. Uh, how did Jeff and Lisa meet? Ooh, that's a great question. There's that. So there's the one because she she kind of makes a uh, something about you know I can get you jobs doing fashion, fashion portraits yeah, yeah. and he's like, Psh. but they have that one fashion portrait that he took. Yeah, and he's got like all the copies of the magazine with it. So I wonder if that's where they met. Yeah, if he he just did it as a one off at some point. Yeah. And, like, and they met through that a little extra money you know took it took a job mm-hmm. uh my question was who is the woman and what happened to her that Thorwall was having an affair with or was he having an affair because he it sounds like he was having an affair with a woman is she is she the one who he puts her on the train yes. and then she's pretending to be Anna Mrs. Thorwall. somewhere else yes. but yeah yeah do they end up tracking her down and arresting her for accessory yeah. who knows does she yeah does she know like because because it's like yeah because that's the one that's the person he's talking to on the phone we see but again the idea of perspective is like we we never get like the information about that at all we just we are left yeah, to no. assume that he is having an affair with someone 
he killed his wife for the affair for the woman and he's gonna go, go off with her basically um how long did he break both of his legs again is what it was or just the yeah, other both okay. of them the second time so how long it's gonna be another, another six weeks yeah man he's he's definitely got to get into the portrait mode then oh yeah and so that leads to my next question do, do does lisa and and jeff get married yes and how long before they get married once his legs heal once his legs heal yeah <laughs> I, I also just I absolutely love that that last shot of the movie and and I think it I think it goes to show you how how much kind of respect that movie has for her character. But when she's just like, yeah, I'm going to read this book on the Himalayas, but I'm also going to keep reading Harper's Bazaar. Like, <laughs> so well done. Well, and I think that book was like, yeah, yeah, it was about like it was about like a, a man who was like who was climbing the Himalayas is what it was. Um, also, how long before he moves out of that apartment? <laughs> Does he stay in that apartment after like after this? I mean, I think I think at some point I mean, she's probably got a better apartment. But oh, yeah, they yeah, probably yeah. Can't, they probably can't move him until he's healed. Yeah. But it's like, to, like to the, they end up like having like a like go live in the Hamptons or something. I don't know. Go live somewhere else. Like go find the suburbs in New York. I don't know. Is there because like, at a certain point, like you're probably too old to live in Greenwich Village at this point in time. Like 60s <laughs> are coming in. You probably want to get out. Um. So, yeah. All right. Awards. The Beatrice Strait Award actor actually that scenes that kills it. Who do you have? I think I think we're I think the awards are pretty much laid out <laughs> here, right? Thelma Ritter Thelma for Ritter. Beatrice Strait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Thelma Ritter for Beatrice Strait. And then just jump straight into the next one. <laughs> I can smell trouble right here in this apartment. First you smash your leg, then you get to looking out the window, see things you shouldn't see. Trouble. I can see you in court now, surrounded by a bunch of lawyers in double-breasted suits. You're pleading. You say, judge, it was only a little bit of innocent fun. I love my neighbors like a father. And the judge says, well, congratulations. You've just given birth to three years in Danamora. Right now, I'd welcome trouble, you know. You've got a hormone deficiency. How can you tell from a thermometer? Those bathing beauties you've been watching haven't raised your temperature one degree in a month. So now, any Potts X Factor Award, uh, supporting actor, actress is the most memorable. Grace Kelly. Yeah, it's interesting because like she could, she could pass for leading, mm-hmm. but I don't think she's in there enough to be leading. Is the thing. Yeah, no. Like she's, it's, it's like it's she's she's like really, she feels like a lead because of how great she is, but I'm not sure if she's fully elite. Is the thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you, you forget until you kind of rewatch, like this time I rewatched it, like, it's not really until that last night that everything goes down mm-hmm. that she and Thelma are even there, the, or the, she and Stella are even there at the same, same time. time. Yeah, like, yeah. You, you have scenes with, you have, like, the daytime scenes where it's Stella and Jeff, and then you, the nighttime scenes, it's it's Lisa and Jeff, and then it, it goes back and kind of bounces back and forth with the two of those until kind of the big climax. Yeah, so yeah. All right, Grace Kelly, Any Potts X Factor Award. Where does a man get inspiration to write a song like that? Well, he gets it from the landlady once a month. It's utterly beautiful. Wish I could be creative. Oh, sweetie, you are. You, you have a great talent for creating difficult situations. I do? Sure. Staying here all night, uninvited. Oh, surprise is the most important element of attack. And besides, you're not up on your private eye literature. When they're in trouble, it's always their girl Friday who gets them out of it. 
Well, is she the girl that saves him from the clutches of the seductive showgirls and the overpassionate daughters of the rich? Is the same. That's the one. But he never ends up marrying her, does he? That's strange. Weird. The Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. It, it's Hitchcock. It's Hitchcock. <laughs> this, this is, I, I, I said it before, but I think this is, of, of all the movies, Yeah. Th- I think this one best illustrates the, the duality of Hitchcock. And it can help you, you know, now he's, he's, he's respected, he is, you know, he's studied, yep. he's, he's academic, it's all this stuff. But to put yourself in that mindset of when the French really started revering him is to realize that, like, he was a B-movie maker in america he was a very successful one but everyone was just like oh it's a hitchcock movie it'll be fun yeah like the the reason the french became so outspoken about him was because they were like you guys do not appreciate what this man is giving you just because he's making movies about murder does not mean that they are not peak cinema um and and you know some of his other movies like as much as i love vertigo vertigo's a little headier you yeah. know it, it it's kind of the the artistry is on display in that one he, you know yeah he's and i think this is the one and psycho is is so stripped down like the beauty of psycho is how stripped down it is yep but this is the one where it is like you can sit and watch it you can show it to anybody and they can go that was a really enjoyable movie yeah and then you can go, did you even notice like that the camera was just looking out the window for the entire movie? Did you notice there's no score? It's all done yeah. diegetically. And and they go, oh, no, no, I had no idea. Did you notice like, the statements on voyeurism in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think this is the one where it's really like completely enjoyable as a film and then also mind blowing from a technical yeah, standpoint. I would say this is probably if you're introducing someone to Hitchcock for the first time. I feel like Rear Window is the one you, you show first. Would you say? Mm-hmm. I would say that's what I think. Maybe North by Northwest. Yeah. Like it's. I think it's one of the two that you would do first. Yeah, I, I could. I, I would probably argue for this one. I yeah. think. I think. I, I. I personally, this is not my favorite of his. I'm one of those schlubs that that loves Vertigo, but you you, you can't throw somebody headfirst in into Vertigo. No. Apparently. No. Apparently. Uh. Uh. Ben Mankiewicz doesn't agree. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is up there. This is yeah. top five for me. Yeah, this, this um, is probably top three for me. It's top three yeah. for me. Yeah, it might be two. Um, I don't know. It changes. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think this is a great intro yeah. to people for sure. No, I agree. But yeah, so Alfred Hitchcock. If we ever do another movie, he'll probably win that one too. But he's the Gene Hackman MVP. Yeah, was, we're not we're not surprising anyone by giving <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock the MVP. <laughs> yeah, award for this film. All right, final questions. If this film was remade today, who would you cast? All right. Well, I think I've told you before that I I view Andrew Garfield as our modern day Jimmy Stewart. So more than t- well, I, he's old. He's older, but like Tom Hanks is always one that got the biggest yeah, kind of. No, you can't put Tom Hanks in this movie now. Um, what do you mean? He, maybe he, he's. He, I'll see because Jimmy Stewart was like fifty. Jimmy Stewart was like forty-five in this. No, was, no, he was. He was. Uh, Okay, man, you're right. Man, he was 45. Just because they made 40, his toupee a little gray in this one. He was 46, and Grace Kelly was 25. Yeah, yeah. There's still still an age gap, but <laughs> that's your. That was but probably, to give it to, to, yeah. give, to give it so, the modern but, day but, Tom but, Hanks okay, is so a little how do you, drastic. The real question. This is this is backtracking, but does that like does that work? Like, because like there's such an age gap between them. 
and I know it's because he looks older, but like it, 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 it doesn't bump me for some reason because I think mm-hmm. she feels so much more mature. Yeah, I think she, she plays it a lot more mature. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which is the opposite of, of how we do now. You know. Yeah. We, it was back then. It was like, oh, you're 25. Okay, you're gonna play 35. Now we're like, oh, you're 25. You could pull off 14. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have Andrew Garfield for 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 LB Jeffries, is what you're saying? Yes, Andrew Garfield for Jeffries. I mean, he, I have... the thing is, he kind of plays that too in Under the Silver Lake. That's kind of his character mm. a little bit too. So that makes sense. Mm. But I think he's got. It's not just that he's kind of gangly. He's, I think he's got that kind of all shucks. Yeah. When he when he wants to have it, he's got that kind of all shucks energy. Okay. Um okay uh for stella yeah got katherine hahn yep makes perfect sense and then i've got i've got two for for lisa um but actually now that i think about it both they 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 are they work together um (laughs) if you're if you're going for your kind of like well i guess they're they're both models i don't know i've just got two two and i can't narrow it down I'll, I'll go ahead and say Zendaya's basically already played this role in Malcolm and Marie yes. as a yeah. Yeah. kind of glamorous yeah. woman who is not appreciated by an asshole of a guy that she's with. Yeah. Didn't care for that movie, but I neither. she could do it. She could play this. She could do this with her eyes closed. Yeah. Uh, and then also Sydney Sweeney, I think did, did the voyeurs. Yeah. Not, not, a not a great take on this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but I think she could give it she could give it a shot in this one. And also, I, I texted a friend of mine who this is like one of his absolute favorite movies last night and asked him what he thought. And he agreed with Andrew Garfield and he brought up Sandy Sweeney. And I was like, that's a that's a good take. She'd that be is, good. That's a solid take. Uh, one that one that came to mind, I think we've said her several times in the show before, and that would be uh, Brie Larson, maybe is one I thought of. Mm. I think either. I think I, I, any of these three are good. Age-wise, Brie Larson's probably the closest to go with for yes. Andrew Garfield. Yes, well, and then there's also, of course, you know, I don't know if they work together anymore, but if you're going for pure chemistry, you got you to gotta get Emma Stone in on this. Oh, Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield? I mean, they're good yeah. friends still. They're good friends. Yeah. That's not a I bad pick. Tight, yeah. I, almost, I almost want to say Emma Stone for this. They would do it together. I think I think we can yeah. convince them. Uh, I think we missed our shot. I think this was a prime COVID movie. <laughs> Well, I mean, Voyeurs is kind of that. Is it yeah. It's like I, I like Emma Stone. I like Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield for this. Cool. Let's locked in. Okay, let's go. go. Uh, do we have a Raymond Burr? Do we have Mr. Thorwald? <laughs> is it Paul Giamatti? Bad. Paul Giamatti. Let's go, with Paul Giamatti. <laughs> I just keep wanting to throw Paul Giamatti into movies for some reason. I don't know why. I feel like he's been in Billions for so long. Like he hasn't been in a lot of movies of late. Like mm-hmm. needs to be back in the film. Um. So does this film fit with any other genres? outside of the contained containment genre yeah i mean it's 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 a thriller it's a mystery it's a romance it's a neighborhood film you know yeah i don't know what you know it it is kind of ultimately about you're watching all these people all their lives kind of come together which is which is interesting and is it a predecessor to the erotic thriller oh yeah okay i mean almost anything hitchcock did was that way yes but yes, you know, the, just the idea of voyeurism was and, and Hitchcock are all tied in weirdly together. But but yes, I think definitely. It, and there's a lot of innuendos in the in the yes, in the movie and in, in the dialogue. A lot. Well, of, I mean, even, you know, is provably we, we talked about body double being one of the early movies to launch the, the that genre and it being a remake of this. Yep. I agree. Just want to get it out it's, there. It's all. It's all in there. Yeah. Uh, and then, how does this film fit with the containment genre? It's it's one of the best. Yeah. Like you said, as far 
it's it's one of those that that people have tried remaking and remaking and remaking um and so i think within the containment genre anytime you do get into the i i'm stuck in this house and i'm going crazy mm-hmm. this this one there's there's going to be fingerprints of this one yeah in that especially any mystery or thriller that kind of goes with with, with the yeah. contained genre yeah i mean all those what's, what's the one all, you know all those kind of uh paperback adaptations right what was the one with the the train the woman on the train oh oh, oh yeah yeah well, not, the, the late that's yeah. kind of the same thing it's just like you know no one believes me i saw a crime happen yeah and and no one believes i'm telling the truth do you remember this this is just made just for me but do you know this old like kids movie from the 90s about these like four like friends who think their neighbors like killed his wife and buried her underneath the this exists in my mind. I know it happened. I never remember the name of this movie, but like he's mm. he's like he like buries her beneath the house is what it is. And they're mm. like, we think he's killed somebody. He's killed his wife. And they're like trying to like investigate it or whatever. Mm. And spoiler alert, he killed he killed his wife, and they figured it out. Mm. It was like a kids movie. Is what it was. You know, there's this movie. There's this movie called Book of Henry, right? <laughs> Oh man! And it, they they go through something very similar in that <laughs> one. Yeah, so you guys should check that one out. <laughs> that's that's all you're saying. Is is it streaming anywhere right now? Let's see. I don't know. Oh yeah, I just looked up the Letterbox, the half star Letterbox reviews for for uh uh Rear Window just to see what people said. And someone said this is not as good as Book of Henry. No, not that. It's on Netflix. Book of, <laughs> Book of Henry's on Netflix. If you guys want to watch it. No, it was uh someone said, "Oh, Disturbia did this better." <laughs> okay if you say so <laughs> i mean disturbia does have one thing going for it and that's matt craven you know how i feel about matt craven <laughs> very very briefly in that movie but he is in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah viola davis in there before viola davis got big she's she's the like the the pearl officer mm-hmm. or whatever for him um I, yeah, someone someone just like someone says almost every role I've ever seen Jimmy Stewart play is just a raging misogynist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, yeah. I, it's, That's kind of the point. All, in Hitchcock all, movies. I think all I Hitchcock about, movies are that way. I don't know about outside of Hitchcock movies, but yeah, you know, if, if you're if you're watching Vertigo and you're you're yeah. agreeing with uh, with Scotty, then then maybe there's yeah. something wrong. Yeah, with yeah. I don't know if Harvey is like he's playing a very <laughs> raging massage. I'll have to revisit that one. I have to admit, the last time I saw Harvey, I was pr- probably not yeah. uh, educated in gender politics. That's probably yet. true too. I don't, I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, all right. So what's what's next week's episode, Thomas? What we got? So next week, <laughs> going in a very di- different direction. I guess you could call it a thriller. Who knows what we're going to call it? I have not seen this movie since theaters but i thoroughly enjoyed it the first time i saw it and the rest of the world hated it so we will be talking about one of the only movies to ever score an f on the cinema scores the notorious darren aronofsky film mother exclamation point so (laughs) it uh it'll be an interesting one tune in this is i'm I'm continuing my challenge to myself of picking a movie that brandon does not like so so i like this movie what are we talking about okay (laughs) <laughs> i always like this movie i came into it we'll talk about next week but i came into it later than you did though so i oh, kind of okay. came into it like knowing what it was about a little i, I kind of mm-hmm. the, the the symbolism and stuff he was going for but we'll talk about that next week 
and yeah so that's that's this week that's rear window um that's all we have for you if you're a fan of the show or a new listener make sure you subscribe to Nation podcast so you stay up to date on all of our new episodes you can subscribe to our show on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, stitcher or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already make sure you write us a review on whatever platform to listen to the show on you know be be a good neighbor you know be <laughs> I think Stella has some line. I can't even remember what, what, whatever happened to love thy neighbor. You know? <laughs> and if you love this podcast, tell your neighbors and also go online and, and review. I, yeah. I love, I love the puns. You just try to come up with every week now. I just immediately. I do not plan these at all. I, I, I do sit down and brainstorm the casting, but I always forget. <laughs> I always forget until right when you prompt me to, to do one of these. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I was supposed to come up with a uh, review uh, pitch this week. Well, just, yeah, go do a review, guys. That's all we have to say. Uh, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that jazz. As always, Thomas, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.